In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Tower of Ivory, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So this talk dovetails with the last talk that I gave, uh, because they both deal with phenomena that occur in life that are just not normal. But I think that they're both important to be aware of, especially for reasons of explaining the faith. You know, you might encounter someone on the street that might start talking to you about Catholicism, and the topic of miracles might come up, or, you know, something strange. Uh, and, you know, if you can give them some reasons as to, you know, what we do believe, um, then you can explain to them about modern-day miracles and perhaps maybe change their mind uh, about Catholicism and help them to believe and understand the faith a little bit more. For miracles, we look to St. Thomas Aquinas and his explanation. Now, I'm taking this from the uh, his Summa Theologica, uh, the first part, question 105, and then articles 5 through 8. So, it, we must say that God is always working through creation because he is the first cause. Now, God as the first cause is one of those proofs for his existence. Being a cause means being part of a chain of other causes that go back to the first who is God. You know, so each and every one of you, you were caused by your two parents, right? And then they were caused by their two parents. And you keep going back through the whole line up till Adam and Eve. And then the two of them were caused by God. Well, uh, then the chain kind of stops at God. God sort of pushes the first domino. Uh, and then creation kind of goes. Uh, all the way back to the Big Bang. So, There are certain actions that God does where he is the main cause. Yet in everything else, you know, it is an agent or another mover that causes the action. You know, if I drop my book, God is not the direct cause of that. I am the agent who is letting gravity work on my book. Uh, a book does not move itself, so gravity moves it down until something gets in its way. But since I'm the one letting the book go and gravity work on it, I cause the book to fall, and then God holds all of that into existence while it's happening. Regarding miracles, uh, God is the author. You know, uh, God needs to be the end of every operation and work, and every work that is done should point back to God as being the first cause of everything. But in miracles, God is the direct cause. You know, you might think it's strange that God has ordered the universe in such a way that things naturally happen, you know, such as the sun rising in the morning and setting in the evening. Yet he makes miracles happen that surprise us. Miracles that are something that we don't expect to be happening. Because to some people, it's strange that God would actually disrupt the order of his creation to make something extraordinary happen. They would think it would be kind of undoing some of the work that he's already done. But that's not the case. Because God knows everything and has planned everything. He is the first cause and so he is the first, the highest in the order of existence. God is truly the king of his creation and is a higher cause than everything else that he's made. So he can arrange those things however he wants to arrange them. You know, think of it this way. God, life is God's game and God makes the rules, right? 
the order of things in the hierarchy of perfection, it all depends on God. Who can perform higher actions than what their base nature would be if greater good will come out of those? Enter miracles. Where God does anything against that order of nature, which we know and are accustomed to observe, we call it a miracle. And that's the definition from St. Augustine, you know, back from the 300s. Miracle comes from the word admiration, which means to look at with awe, for we can see the effects, but we do not know the cause. We are used to seeing certain things happen naturally. You know, so when we see something that is greater than what we naturally see, it's a miracle. When our Lord told the man with the withered hand to stretch out his hand, and then he found that his hand was made whole, since Jesus had cured it and made it normal, we see the effect. You know, the, hands, the man's hand was healed. But we do not see the cause, which was God's invisible action through faith. That is a miracle. You know, we're not used to seeing diseases just go away. They either need to run their course as with a cold, or they need to be treated more aggressively, such as with a surgery, in order for health to be restored. Miracles, therefore, occur outside the order of nature, since they are above the natural realm. And this is why we call miracles supernatural, super as in above, and nature as in the usual essence of things, the way they exist. They correct and elevate that which they are used to in the order of things as we know them. This is different from the actions of ghosts and demons, which we heard about last month. You know, both of those do not act above nature. They act outside of nature. Neither orders the natural world according to their desires. Neither ghosts nor demons has created anything that, because that belongs only to God, creation. Ghosts and demons act outside of nature, and so we call their actions preternatural. You know, praetor being outside, and natural, you know, being what we just discussed. Like everything in God's ordering of creation, there's a hierarchy to miracles. You know, we do not compare miracles to the, God's divine power himself, right? Because God's divine power surpasses all power of all time, you know, everything that you're looking at. Um, how we write miracles is by comparing them to nature. So the more p- the power of nature is surpassed, the greater we say the miracle is. The first way that nature is surpassed is by the substance of the deed, which means that nature is surpassed by what actually happens, since this category of miracle doesn't actually happen in nature, ever. Uh, If the sun goes backwards, you know, if the human body is resurrected and glorified, if a body exists in two places at once, you know, these things will never happen naturally. And so they are the greatest of miracles. The second way that a thing surpasses the power of nature is not in its substance, but how it's done. So the miracles in this category are those that occur in nature, but would otherwise not happen if you left them alone. For instance, you know, raising of the dead and giving sight to the blind are two examples. Bodies normally have life, yet to be bereft of it by death, and then to have it restored That's certainly out of the natural process of just life and how it goes. Same thing with eyes. Eyes usually have sight as long as there's light and they are healthy, but blind eyes never fix themselves. 
Restoring eyesight to the blind is giving to eyes the function that they should already have and that they usually do. Same thing with giving life back to the body. You know, the body's meant to live. And it's kind of a restoration, but once again, outside of the natural order of things. The third way that the power of nature is surpassed is the order in which it's done, or how it's done according to time. You know, when Jesus cured Peter's mother-in-law of a fever, he took her hand and helped her out of bed. Well, the fever left her, and it would have passed if she had more time to heal. Yet, the effects are known, and health was restored instantly, which is outside of the natural healing process. The calming of a storm or causing rain to fall are both of this lowest class of miracle, because they might lack a natural cause, but they still happen regularly in nature. They just happen much faster than normal and in an instantaneous way whenever it is a miracle. So those are miracles. You know, they're acts of God, and they completely pass our expectations of what should happen. One of the things that I love about being a priest is that I get to see miracles every single day. I get to be an active part of them as well. Every single sacrament is a miracle. And as St. Thomas teaches us, they are miracles of the highest order, since none of them happen in nature. But when most of us think of miracles, we think of saints and by location or other unusual and amazing things happening. Part of the process for sainthood is that the person has to have two miracles attributed to them after they die. You know, if they have one confirmed, then they can become a blessed and recognized as such. But the process for sainthood requires two, for heaven to confirm that the person is in fact a saint, and their life should be emulated by those who are still living. Part of the process for sainthood includes having to get miracles confirmed, which means that all natural causes need to be eliminated, you know, once again, we know the effects of the miracle, but we do not know the cause. This fits into St. Thomas's system, where the effect and the miracle itself is known, and the cause can only be God. This step of the process can be tricky, because the Congregation for the Causes of Saints in the Vatican needs to get doctors to sign off on some of those medical miracles. However, most doctors do not want to attach their names to these miracles. You know, they think it's a bad career move when they sign off on something that they don't know. One example of such a miracle is the miraculous cure of Parkinson's disease by the intercession of Pope St. John Paul II. The process was difficult because one doctor was convinced that the miraculous cure was something natural that they had just not found yet. You know, even though that person was the only person in the history of medicine to be cured of Parkinson's disease, you know, he still didn't want to believe. You see, Parkinson's is not a curable disease. It is, a de- it is degenerative, and it does not just go away on its own. Even medical treatments are all aimed at slowing down its progression. Modern science is not able to cure it. So the fact that a French nun was cured of Parkinson's is a miracle because there is no natural expectation for the disease to go away, either for the body to heal itself, you know, or for some medical treatment to intervene and actually take care of the disease. 
She is the only person in history to be cured of Parkinson's, and medical science has to acknowledge that they do not know why. Many doctors have a hard time signing the paper saying that the cure has no explanation by medical science, since they do not also want to attach their name to the church. You know, many would view it as professional suicide, so they can understand their reluctance. You know, especially if they do not understand the importance of those findings, how important it is for us as a church and the benefits that we have from having another saint to intercede for us, another saint to look forward to, and another saint to help us in our daily struggles in life. A saint's life might have been full of miracles, but what counts for, for sainthood are the miracles after death. Uh, there are a couple exceptions to this, of course. You know, St. Ignatius of Loyola and St. Pio of Pietrelcina are two exceptional examples of miracles attributed to them in their lifetimes. You know, both exercise persons during their lifetimes without the permission of the local bishop. Now, if you remember from last week, you know, we as humans need the authority of the church to kick out demons. And the church reserves it only for bishops and priests. And even then, you know, it's only certain priests that can do that. They need special permission to be given to them by the bishop. Neither St. Ignatius nor St. Pio had that permission, yet both were able to drive demons out of people during their lives. Those miracles stand as a testament to their holiness of life, being able to do what Christ commissioned the apostles to do, you know, his bishops. So, there are other exceptional miracles as well. And we as Catholics believe in the true presence of the Eucharist, that the Eucharist is Jesus Christ, our Lord and God, in his complete body and blood, soul and divinity. We know that each and every Eucharist is a miracle in and of itself. But a Eucharistic miracle is when the host takes on the accidents of a real body. You know, we celebrate the first Eucharistic miracle every year on the Feast of Corpus Christi. And regarding accidents, uh, accidents are just kind of attributes. They're, they're describers. They're things that we would attach. You know, if a piece of bread looks, smells, tastes, feels like bread, then it usually is bread. But the Eucharist, it maintains all of those accidents of bread while becoming a completely different substance, becoming God himself. So regarding accidents or the attributes of human flesh, there is a pattern that Eucharistic miracles all follow. The first is that the tissue is always heart tissue, and the second is that the blood type is always AB positive. You know, examination of one of the most miracle, recent miracles revealed that not only was the tissue of the Eucharist from the heart, but it also contained white blood cells, meaning that the tissue itself was still alive. White blood cells will die quickly if they, are part, if they are separated from the tissue and separated from the body. And white blood cells are only present in heart tissue when there has been trauma. And it makes complete sense that the heart tissue from the Eucharist would have those cells present because of how traumatic and violent a death by crucifixion was, not only for the lungs, but for the heart as well. To fake all of those things medically in a piece of bread 
would in itself be nothing short of miraculous. One of the hosts that began to bleed was put in water for four years before anything was done to test the miracle. Yet the Eucharist did not break down. The Eucharist, in fact, became more flesh-like. The long wait is usually because of bishops. You know, they want to avoid fakes. They want to avoid, avoid falsity and misleading the faithful people. So they give things time to settle down and time to organize tests. Blood type is determined by different markers on red blood cells, which can be made of proteins, carbohydrates, or lipids. You know, blood types consist of different combinations of those markers on red blood cells. Type O blood has no markers, while A and B are the other two usual types, and they have specific ones. AB positive blood makes sense as well for being in the Eucharistic miracle because it is blood that contains all the markers that a human person can have. You can think of AB positive blood as being the most complete blood because it has everything in it. Christ lived the perfect life, and so the universal recipient blood type means that all humans can enter into Christ's sacrifice at the Mass as it is offered to God the Father in heaven. You might think that it is a miracle that speaks to the faith of the people, but Eucharistic miracles tend to be in God's response to a lack of faith in his presence in the Eucharist. You know, it's actually more like a kind of a slap in the face to the faithful to wake up and believe than it is a pat on the back for doing a good job and having faith. Even the first Eucharistic miracle in Balsano in the year 1263 was in response to a lack of faith by the priest. The priest celebrating Mass was devout, but he was having trouble believing in the real presence of the Eucharist. You know, after the consecration, when the priest says, this is my body and this is my blood, when transubstantiation occurs, as mere bread becomes the, the body of God, the host began to bleed. And in Balsano, it bled onto the cloth underneath called the corporal, and then it continued to bleed onto the altar stone underneath that, the altar stone which contains a relic of a saint. The yearly procession in Balsano is a Eucharistic one, with Jesus in the Eucharist at the end of it. Also, the altar stone that has been stained by the blood of our Lord is also processed as they go through the town. And it's, uh, it's a very surreal experience. You'll have people throwing you know, rose petals out of their balconies as the Lord passes by, and it's all to give honor to God. It's a very beautiful thing. But the priest who consecrated the Eucharist in 1263, he is not a saint. His lack of belief is not something that the faithful should look up to. The faithful need heroes to be examples for their lives. And so that's why, you know, the, the church never canonized him. You know, we shouldn't be looking to a life of doubt as being a life that uh, we, we try to live ourselves. We shouldn't be living out a life of faith and look to saints who did believe and lived their entire life around God. There have been many more of these miracles happening in recent years. There have been four approved Eucharistic miracles since the beginning of the century. And, you know, before there had been centuries that went by, before there was, a, you know, multiple Eucharistic miracles God is telling us to wake up and believe in his true presence in the Eucharist. So to know that it is him 
and to treat the Eucharist with the utmost respect, not just to treat it as another piece of food that is to be eaten, but treat it as God, treat it as our Lord. Give the Eucharist all the care that you would want God to care for your soul with. It is interesting to try and place these Eucharistic miracles in St. Thomas's ranking of miracles because the Eucharist itself is a miracle of the highest order. The accidents of appearing to be bread are what do not match the substance of the host, which is God. For even though the Eucharist is Jesus, body and blood, soul and divinity, the host still smells, tastes, looks like a regular wafer of bread. The additional miracle in a Eucharistic miracle is that the accidents of the host match its substance. So it is Christ's body and blood. And thanks to the miracle, you know, the host bleeds and the blood of Christ and it is composed of his flesh. It would seem to be a miracle of the highest order because the accidents of bread never change into the accidents of human flesh in the natural order of things. Thus being a miracle added to another miracle. So that's just a little background on, on miracles and, and what they are. And now let us turn toward preternatural gifts and those occurrences that might seem miraculous, but they're just outside the order of nature. These occurrences that are outside of nature, but are not above it, are called preternatural gifts. They are things like talking with and commanding animals, seeing angels, or having an intuition that is off the charts, meaning that they know things and just seem that seem to be unknowable to normal people. These gifts are not above man's nature, but are actually in accord with it as it originally was. That is, before the fall of Adam and Eve, so our first parents would have had these gifts. Before the sin of our first parents, man had complete control over their bodies. They interacted perfectly with nature and lived their stewardship to its fullest. They were given authority over all animals by being able to name them. So, you know, if Adam wanted to tell a lion, you know, come here. The lion, being a cat, it would slink over as to his side as cats do, right? Uh, since they're never in a rush and they do things in their time. But it would still listen and it would still understand because it had to. You know, creation hadn't fallen and God was still at the pinnacle of the material world. God had naturally ordered man at the top of the material world, which was completely subject to man. Man who only wanted what God wanted. You know, and an example of this kind of, you know, in centuries uh, not, not too long ago, when St. Rose of Lima would pray in adoration and bend down in reverence to the Lord in the Eucharist and the monstrance, there are accounts that all the flowers in the church would bend with her in adoration to the Lord present in the Eucharist. We see how nature was responding to her holiness and following her lead, because plants have souls too. They have vegetative souls. They don't have rational souls like us, and they don't go on after death. You know, animals have animalistic souls, and the same thing. Their souls don't go on after they die. But, you know, she was able to lead these vegetative souls as she paid respect to God. It was a gift that was outside of our fallen nature, but in accord with our original holiness as given to us by God. One of the things that made the original sin of Adam and Eve so bad was that they knew exactly what they were doing. 
Before sin, they lived in perfect harmony with each other and even walked in the garden with God in the evening. The first sin of Eve was curiosity because she saw a talking snake and thought that it was interesting, so she walked over. Uh, You know, she would have been used to being able to talk with animals, but she knew something was different. It wasn't some shallow trick that the devil used to get her to talk to it. You know, talking with animals was normal. But Eve knew the snake was evil, yet she chose to engage it anyway. Her awareness of evil and then tempting herself then made her action evil. And we all know the rest of the story. Uh, It was all downhill from there, and then Jesus came and died for our sins uh, and, you know, opened the gates of heaven to us again. Um, And we're still waiting for him to come back again and then have, you know, like the, the perfect happy ending there. But in all the saints, we see remnants of these gifts. St. Francis preached to the birds in the forest that was behind Assisi, and they would listen. They would gather around him and even land on him. There is also the story of St. Francis and the wolf, where the wolf was eating the livestock and killing the people of Gubbio. The townspeople wanted the wolf killed, but St. Francis had a different plan. He went and he talked to it, you know, as, as a saint just decides to do, well, I'll talk to the wolf instead of, you know, just doing what we naturally do, which is kill it. He found out why it was attacking, that it had been injured and stranded by the rest of its pack, and it did not want to attack humans, but it did so to defend itself. He entered the town with the wolf, and St. Francis brokered a deal between the wolf and the townspeople. That as long as they fed the wolf, it would protect the townsfolk. You know, it might sound like a children's tale, but it's real. And when you understand that talking with animals is an ability that our first parents had, St. Francis sounds just a little less crazy than he might have before. Some people are born with these preternatural gifts. They are gods to give, after all. Yet others are given to them by God due to their holiness. The prayer that the priest prays when putting on the stole before Mass is that he might have the original humanity, holiness of humanity restored to him by God before he celebrates the Eucharist. St. Francis, by living out the Beatitudes, had that holiness returned to him by God and so was able to do what our original parents were able to do. We see this in other saints, such as St. Martin de Porres, who would talk with the mice in his friary, St. Francis of Paola, he was a hermit and he had a fish and a lamb as two of his friends. And St. Seraphim of Serov, who was one of my favorites, uh, who when he was on a journey, he had his horse eaten by a bear. He had to spread the gospel, so he told the bear, you know, I have to get where I'm going. So from now on, he's going to ride that bear. He's going to ride him, and that bear is no longer to eat meat. And well, he rode the bear around until the day that... It died, uh, and it was, he rode around just like it was a horse. Being able to see or understand the spiritual is another preternatural gift. Saints Padre Pio and Gemma Galgani used to talk with their guardian angels. Gemma's would tell her her sins and how to overcome them, and Pio's would help him, sometimes, in his struggles against the devil. Other times, God allowed the, his guardian angel to step back because Uh, You know, Padre Pio's suffering redeemed many, many souls and contributed to the holiness of those around him. That gift seemed to be present from a very young age in both saints, 
But they were also living lives worthy of sainthood from the time they were very young. They would fast frequently and spend entire nights in prayer to God. Intuition is another gift from God. St. Teresa of Avila was visiting her relatives since they had a newborn baby boy. When she had the baby in her arms, she prayed that if this little boy would grow up to be an evil man and be damned at the end of his life, that God would take his life before that could happen. Now just pause for a second. I mean, who holds a newborn in their arms and prays that prayer? Uh, Who would have known that the boy's life that he would have led? How his life would have ended? And how would someone have known the right prayer to pray to correct this boy, to get this boy salvation? Well, the boy was baptized while St. Teresa was there, hence the reason for her visit. And then the following week, he died in his sleep. Saintly intuition to understand the situation and be able to know what to do and to trust in God. It's incredible. None of that makes sense to normal people. But to the saints, salvation is everything. And they know when and how to call upon the mercy of God. Those are how those gifts work with the saints, since they have been given extra grace by God, and God has chosen to restore some of that original holiness and the benefits that go along with that. However, there are some people who have these sorts of gifts without leading any sort of exceptional lives. You know, if this is the case, then you cannot trust their gifts. You see, in an ironic twist after the fall, humans who have these sorts of gifts cannot control them as well as demons can. The devil knows how to use humanity's original powers better than humans do, and he will manipulate them at every chance that he gets. Sometimes a person will say that they have a good spirit around them who tells them things. In the business world, we would call it a conflict of interest, you know, when a party is giving information to someone whom they are directly involved with doing business with. So, if a self-proclaimed ghost hunter says that they have a friendly spirit telling them that a house has been cleansed of demons, it's probably a demon feeding them a lie, since the demon could be the one talking to them, and probably is, and the demon wants to stay hidden and can play with any abilities that this person might have. Some psychics are real, but you should not trust anyone who accepts money. You know, if there might be an interesting situation where someone might come up to you and say, you know, you might think I'm crazy, but I just have to let you know your dad's going to be okay. He's, he's all right, and I'm praying for you. You know, and they don't want anything from you, and they just go away. Um, you know, there might be something to it, or they might be crazy. You know, who knows? Um, Or they might have been given an intuition from God. However, preternatural abilities are so sporadic and easily corrupted that unless the person is saintly, you should approach them as a skeptic. These people are exceptions to the norm. You know, and even then, they're a very slim, uh, slim sliver of an exception to an exception. Yet even among exceptional cases, there are exceptions. There are certain people who actually inherit these abilities from previous generations. But you have to be very wary of these. Because you remember that these are gifts that can be from God. Yet the devil can also activate them and twist how people use them. 
You know, sometimes you will see them passed on in perhaps like a gypsy line of women, uh, what I've heard about. Other times in generations of witches. And other times they're from a, a curse that's been put on a family, let's say from the Freemasons or some other source. You know, these are the people to be most cautious about because the devil can be in generational lines. And the people who have these abilities often benefit from them and play others right into the devil's hand. If you're wondering whether or not you have these gifts, don't worry about it. You probably don't. If you want to try and get them, you cannot. So don't try to. They are given by God. Unless you want to start living as the saints did with frequent fasts, with nights of prayer, and abandoning every single thing they were attached to in this earthly life, then you might be given a gift from God. But those gifts are always, 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 always to be used in service for the church, which is, that's the key with these abilities. It has to be, not be used for personal gain. However, if you do all those things not for the love of God, but to gain some ability, you will gain nothing and you'll be misled instead. Any gift given is given for the good of the church and the salvation of souls, so it cannot be for personal gain if it is to be authentic. I hope this talk has helped you round out your understanding of unusual things that you may hear about within the church and just in life in general. Uh, I hope that you can see the saints in a new way after this, as not being crazy or fabricated tales, but as having you know, a real cause that some of humanity's original holiness is present within them, you know, as God intended to make us. So uh, I welcome now any questions that you might have uh, regarding this talk. Yes. So the, so the question is, can people be given special awareness uh, at one time for a given event? Uh, and, and the answer would be yes. I mean, if it's a gift from God uh, and you're cooperating with it, then you can, someone can be given that, you know, just kind of like a one-time deal. Uh, but you see with the saints that they had this, um, throughout their lives, it's that pattern. They just had this intuition. They knew what to do. They knew how to pray. They knew what was going on and the reality of the situations in front of them. But... Answer your question, yes. All things are possible with God. Okay. So, uh, the next talk will be about contrasting authentic prayer versus false spirituality. You know, there are dangers in, uh, to combining different types of prayer from different backgrounds together. You know, especially if it's kind of an Eastern spirituality. Um, because they're not our own, they come from different philosophies. And many times they have like these very bad errors uh, that can actually hurt your own prayer instead of helping it out. Um, so it's important to be aware of what prayer is, what it means to pray, and how to not treat prayer as just some sort of, you know, rigid technique. Because prayer is not a technique. Prayer is relationship with God. Uh, so that's what my next talk will, will be about. Um, so once again, thank you for coming out. We'll have some uh, cookies for takeaway in the back. Uh, and uh, yeah, if you bow down, I'll give you a blessing. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son 
and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace.